Philippians chapter 10. Next week we will finish this uh, section of Scripture that we've been dealing with for so many weeks related to Christian liberty. This is the seventh message. Next week will be the eighth and final message. And so as we've gone through this very lengthy section of Scripture, there's been a principle that has been repeated over and over and over. And it would be my hope that you would be able to at least paraphrase what that principle is, having heard it so many times and perhaps having meditated upon it. The principle is basically this, don't allow your liberty to become a stumbling block in the life of someone else. We may never know what that area might be, and so we must be very concerned that we don't exercise what we perceive to be Christian liberty and create a stumbling block for someone else. So in these so-called gray areas of Scripture, where Scripture does not strictly instruct or forbid an activity, we need to be mindful of how our participation in that activity might harm someone else. And so as we think about those things, we want to exercise our liberty, not in my rights, but in my love for other people. So all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 have dealt with this principle. It has provided for us illustrations related to it. And beginning last time in chapter 10, we began to look at the principle of liberty that was applied from the history of the nation of Israel. So in doing this, Paul sees a very clear and a very obvious parallel between the history of Israel and what it is he is hearing and observing in the lives of the church at Corinth. And so he wants to make sure that they understand how potentially devastating their freedom of liberty can be if it is not exercised with love for others in mind. So by way of very, very quick review, we're behind on time, so I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. So beginning in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, Paul began to talk about the application of this principle with the shared blessing of deliverance. The entire nation of Israel shared in the blessing of deliverance as they crossed through the Red Sea, as God had provided for them a miraculous escape from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. And in this deliverance, they shared together a unique identification as the people of God. There was no people of God until the Exodus where God said, I will make you a people after my own name. You will be unique and all the world will will bless me through you and because of you. Through this Exodus... As they entered into the wilderness, God provided for their physical and their spiritual nourishment, leading them by a cloud throughout the day and a pillar of fire by night, providing for them manna and water in a barren land. And as they began to enjoy His provision, they began to rumble against that. So the tragic example that we see within the nation of Israel is liberty gone wrong. The newfound freedom that they had just been blessed with, which was designed to be used to worship God and to serve Him and His purposes instead became the freedom for them to do as they pleased without any regard for who God was or what God wanted from them. Verse 5 encapsulates this problem where it says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. What a terrible time in the history of the nation of Israel where thousands upon thousands of people who had just experienced this miraculous deliverance were killed because of their sin 
sin and their indifference to the instructions they were given. And as a punishment of that, they were laid low in the wilderness. It would come to be that an entire generation of Israelites would perish in the wilderness because of unbelief and disobedience. Now, as Paul outlined this tragic example, he highlighted four areas of sin that were prevalent throughout the history of the nation of Israel. They were idolatry, immorality, testing God, and complaining against God. So in each of these examples, Paul illustrates how thousands of Israelites died as a form of punishment for this sin that they had committed. So just as the Israelites had forfeited their blessings in pursuit of their own sinful desires, Paul's message to the church at Corinth and to us today is, So can we. If we are not careful, we can forfeit our blessings by allowing our perceived liberty to lead us into an area of license where we become our own standard and we disregard the clear teaching of God's Word. And because we find a way to rationalize it or justify it on our own, it becomes our truth and nobody's going to change my mind. The centralized part of this lesson is found in verse 12 where Paul says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. So many Christians feel like they're invincible. I can go into any area. I can expose myself to just about anything. And I'm strong enough. I can resist. I can stand firm. And I will not give in to that negative experience or that sinful experience around me. Back in the the earlier days, my wife and I went to a Christian school in central Alabama, and we learned of people all throughout the southeast region. And there was a man who was an evangelist, and he had convinced himself that he was going to go to the bars of New Orleans, and he was going to grab a stool and sip a drink, and he was going to fraternize with all of the people who came in, and he was going to win them to the Lord. Well, it didn't take very long that he gave in to the drinking, became an alcoholic, and lost every sound of a ministry that he'd ever had. He was not able to separate himself from his experiences and his influence, and he did not think he would fall. He overestimated his own strength, and he's one of many, many examples of people who think they can skirt the boundary between sin and righteousness and come out unscathed. There's an old saying, be careful when you grab the bulls of the horn, right? What's the, what's the result of grabbing the bulls of the horn? You're going to get stuck. I don't think I said that right, but I think you understand what I'm talking about. So don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Don't overextend your liberty because the potential to sin and fail is right around the corner. We are not strong enough in ourselves to avoid and resist the temptations that are around us. And our section concluded with this great promise in verse 13. No temptation or testing has overtaken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So when you and I fail, it isn't God's failure in providing a way out. It is our failure in appropriating what God has made available to us. It is a great promise that in whatever way we are tested or tempted to wander away or to join ourselves to something that does not represent who we are, God in our relationship with Him, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, will provide a way for us 
to come out of that testing victorious through the power of Christ. Now, as we continue in our passage and application of the principle of liberty, Paul is going to emphatically answer the question that began all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Let's read what God's Word says to us in verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy... We are not stronger than He, are we? So we're going to continue in the outline, and because of that, we're going to pick up here with number 5, and if you look in your sermon notes, you can see everything that came before that as a part of the principle applied. And so here we're looking at the instruction given, and before we get to that particularly, let me read the first part of 14a. Therefore, my beloved... Now, every time we see the word therefore in Scripture, we are to ask ourselves... What is it there for? Well, it is there to directly connect the reader back to what Paul has just established in verses 1 through 13. He has specifically outlined the sin of Israel in the areas of idolatry and immorality and of testing God and of complaining. And he makes it clear that these are not areas of liberty, but they are outright sin and they are forbidden by God. And through Israel's history, we can see that they have been punished by God. So therefore, Paul says, beloved, think about this, despite the problems that existed in the church of Corinth and all of the challenges that were part of their everyday experience, Paul still refers to them as my Beloved, Paul, for many of them, is the spiritual father. He is a former pastor, and he deeply wants what is best for the church at Corinth. Now, he probably says this in this way as a subtle reminder, and this ought to resonate with us in some regard. It is in our nature to resist authority. And don't shake your head no and say, well, that used to be me. That's not me anymore. Uh Uh-uh. It is in our nature to resist authority. And when someone in authority tells us we cannot do something that we want to do, it has the potential to rub us the wrong way, to make us feel like we're being deprived, and it can cause us to question, why would that person deprive me of such a good thing that I want to enjoy in my life? Now, if this doesn't sound like Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind, 
You ought to go back and reread that passage. Every time we hear this thing, well, you're just being deprived, it ought to remind us of the deceitfulness of our enemy who wants us to disbelieve what God has said and say, God's not going to punish me for that. God is withholding something good from me. And therein lies the vast majority of the, of the temptation and the testing that you and I find in our life. So Paul makes it very clear that he loves them and his instruction is abundantly clear. Flee from idolatry. Paul will focus primarily on the sin of idolatry from the history of the nation of Israel since it is central to the question at hand, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? And because it is an incredibly serious sin. What is the first commandment God gave to His people upon founding them as His people? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images before me, etc., etc. It is an incredibly serious sin. So it is very likely that the Corinthians cannot appreciate the spiritual danger that they are in as it relates to the sin of idolatry. And Paul's instruction is emphatically clear. Run. Run from idolatry. Don't see how close you can get. Don't see what's involved in it. Don't see if there's something interesting about it. Run. Just run the other way. Isn't it true that we often can't appreciate how close to the danger we are until the danger surrounds us entirely? Think about it like this. When you were parenting your children... You probably taught them that you cannot play with matches. Well, all they see are these little sticks with a little funny color on the end. And they see you do something with them and this, ooh, this really amazing flame comes out. And if it's a boy, it's like, ooh, it's a flame. I want that flame. So you teach your kids not to play with matches. They can't appreciate the danger of playing with matches until when? Until they've started a fire. And they go, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? The room's on fire. What am I going to do? You're going to run. Well, this is Paul's instruction. Run before the danger is all around you. Paul says you can't appreciate how close you are to a catastrophic event, so run away from any semblance of idolatry. Now this issue is directly related back to the question in chapter 8 verse 1, what about eating food that is sacrificed to idols? And so after more than two chapters, Paul finally answers their question with unmistakable directness. Well, why did it take Paul so long? Why didn't he just start here? Well, you know why? Because when we are denied permission to do something that we think we ought to be able to do, our natural response is, why? Why can't I do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. You're being unfair. You ever hear your kids say that? Why can't I go out with people you don't know and stay out till 2 o'clock in the morning? You can't trust me? No, I can't trust you. <laughs> I really can't trust you. You're not going to do that. I love you too much. You can't appreciate the danger. And so I'm not going to allow you to do something like that. And so rather than answering the question on the front end and then defending it, Paul builds an ironclad case of why they should accept what it is he's about to say, which is very simply, run from idolatry. So what about food sacrificed to idols? No. 
No. Run from idolatry. He will give several reasons why. And the reasons are built upon the principles that Paul has already established, not just in chapters 8 through this point in our passage, but also through the entirety of the letter that he's written to the church of Corinth. Who they are, who he is, of their union with Christ, of all the promises that come from God. And so he says in verse 15, I speak as the wise men, you judge what I say. So Paul is appealing to their self-evaluated wisdom. And if you remember, we go all the way back to chapter 1, and Paul addresses the wisdom that they believe they possess. And this isn't flattery speech to them from Paul, but this is simply an affirmation of how they view themselves. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1.5, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, if you don't remember, speech and knowledge were two of the most coveted gifts in the Roman culture. And since Corinth was a part of the Roman, cor- of the Roman culture, people wanted to be known as being wise and they wanted to be known as knowledgeable, and they wanted to have the eloquent speech that the great orators possessed. And so these were the prized gifts that were within the culture of Corinth. And so Paul is appealing to their self-proclaimed wisdom. They were proud of and boastful in their own in their own knowledge, and in their own in their excuse me, and in their own eyes, they consider themselves to be the wisest of the wise. So when Paul says, "I'm speaking as the wise man," they would say, "Well, yeah, you're talking to us. We know we're wise." Paul says, "Therefore, you judge what I'm about to say." So Paul spent considerable time exposing the true source of their knowledge and wisdom, which was not built upon the truth of God's Word or the teaching of the apostles, but it was instead built upon human philosophy. And if you remember that within the, within the Greek culture of this time, there were at least as many as 50 identifiable philosophies or sources of truth that had infiltrated the Roman culture, and these were all vying for supremacy and attention and there were many different factions within the church who were boasting of the wisdom and of the knowledge that they had. Paul would then pull the plug on their evaluated wisdom when he would say to them in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, when he came to them to share with them the gospel message, but as to men of flesh, as to infants of Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able yet to receive it. And here's the bit. Indeed, even now... You are still not, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So on the one hand, Paul is appealing to their own evaluated source of wisdom and how they would measure that, but he is also doing something else to them. He is appealing to the wisdom that is available to them through the Holy Spirit who will lead them and guide them into the source of truth, which is God's Word given to them through the Apostle Paul. Just as all the nation of Israel shared in the blessings of God through deliverance, so do all Christians share in the blessing of the guidance of the Holy Spirit made available to us as a result of our salvation. 
So based upon the wisdom they possess through the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit, Paul invites them to judge what he is saying. So as an apostle, speaking to them the Word of God given to him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his instruction is perfect because God is the source. So they are to judge what Paul is saying based upon who he is, not upon who they perceive themselves to be and what they decide to be the source of truth. So if they judge correctly, they will agree with him because he is speaking for God. So the sin of idolatry is significant. It is much more than what we would envision of just bowing down to something or lighting an incense To a physical image, idolatry, hear this, idolatry is having any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or anything else that has one's primary concern and loyalty. Each of these would potentially decrease one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. I remember growing up in my adult years and ministering in churches and having many, many parents whose children were in every sport, in every season, and they were in out-of-town tournaments, and they were on travel teams, and they were all over the place. And if you were lucky, you would see them one out of every six weeks, and you would ask them, hey, we've been missing you. Well, you know, we had a tournament over here, and we had a tournament over there, and we had an award celebration over there, and I just believe i got to keep my kids busy with sports so they don't fall into temptation. Well, what are you teaching your kids? You're teaching them that sport is your idol. It is the most important thing in your life. And church and God and worship, all of that is secondary to this thing. And folks, that can be true of virtually anything in our life. It could be our job. It could be our kids. It could be leisure. It could be anything. Anything has a potential to rob God from supremacy in our life where something or someone other than Him occupies our highest loyalty and our highest devotion. It isn't just a little image and a little homemade shrine with a little incense that's burning smoke. That's not what idolatry is. It can be that. It's anything that makes God secondary to who He really is. All of these things become like a God to us, yet they are, in fact, false gods. There is no other God but the God of the Bible, and He will not tolerate the worship of another. The Corinthians lived in a real idol-infested culture with temples on every corner of the city, much like we have churches on virtually every corner of our city, and we would do well, excuse me, we do as well, but they aren't residing in the temples or the structures. They're rooted in our liberty to do as we please because we have decided that these are a good thing, these are an appropriate outlet for my time and my attention, and if we're not careful, we'll be down the slippery slope of idolatry before we know it. Why? Because we can't appreciate the danger that there is in giving great allegiance or loyalty to something other than God. So as Paul deals with the specifics of eating food sacrificed to idols, getting back to the main point, his instruction is very clear. It is flee from idolatry, and he's going to give three reasons for that. The first one is this. Idolatry is inconsistent. Verse 16. 
Is not the cup of blessing which, excuse me, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So the first reason that Paul gives is based upon our identity with Christ. It is clear that Paul is making an obvious reference to the communal meal of the Lord's Supper, which is very different from what we just observed today, a communal meal. And that day and age was a real meal where there was a feast and then towards the end of that there was the religious aspect of that where you would break the bread and you would pass the cup and you would bless it and you would, you would observe the participation in that as a sign of worship to God. Well, Christ instituted the Lord's Supper and He provided its symbolism and its significance. So we read this in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So, communion reminds us of His sacrifice for us, and it reminds us of our oneness with Him and with fellow believers as we together come around the table of the King. So when believers participate in communion, we are sharing in the blood of Christ and we're sharing in the body of Christ and that is central to our salvation. So the key word that Paul uses here in this allusion to the Lord's Supper is the word sharing. Now the word sharing here is the Greek word koinonia, which means to have in common, to participate with, to have partnership in. Paul has already talked about how they have koinonia with Christ. All the way back in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship, koinonia, with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the question is this. How can one who identifies with Christ through the Lord's Supper also identify with an idol through a meal offered in honor of it? How can you do that? How can you sit around the table of a sports banquet of your favorite team and then the next week go to a banquet of your team's greatest rival and celebrate with them? How could you do that? You couldn't do that, could you? It would be inconsistent. Right? And this is exactly the point that Paul is making is it is inconsistent for us to share in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ and also share in a symbolic sacrifice in honor of an idol. Paul emphasizes that this just cannot take place. Verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Because we are one with Christ, we are one with each other, and we cannot be joined to something else. It is inconsistent with our profession and our identity as Christians under the blood through the body of Christ. So as we come into fellowship with Christ through salvation, and we celebrate that through communion, we come into fellowship with each other in a very unique way, 
celebrating the most important aspect of our life. Our salvation in Christ. All believers stand on the same ground at the foot of the cross as forgiven sinners who possess the eternal life principle within them. And that eternal life principle is our reconciliation, our restoration, our deliverance, our glorification. It is the gospel being lived out through our salvation all the way to our moment of eternity. So again, Paul uses the history of Israel to illustrate this point in verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So we've talked about this already. So when the Israelites sacrificed to the Lord, some of the sacrifice was actually consumed on the altar. Some of the sacrifice was distributed amongst the priests for consummation, for, for, um, for consumption. And then some of the sacrifice was distributed to those who had offered the sacrifice. It is the exact same thing that takes place within the temples of the idols with which the Corinthians were participating in and those who were so abundant in the city. So everyone was involved with the offering with God and with each other through what Israel did just as we do at the table. So likewise, the sacrifice to an idol is to identify with it, to participate with the idol and with all others who sacrifice to it. So religious ceremonies, whether Christian or pagan, involve participation of the worshipers with the object of their worship and with each other. So this is this practice then is completely inconsistent for believers to participate in any expression of worship that is apart from and contrary to the worship of their Lord. Let me ask you this. What would be your response if you were to go to your to your favorite place, whether it's a golf course or whether it's a mall or a restaurant, whatever it might be. And when you got there, you saw people who were on their knees and they were bowed down and they were saying, oh, great store, oh, great golf course, oh, great restaurant. How we love you, how we adore you, how we give ourselves to you. We think you are the greatest in all the world. What would be your response As you saw that taking place, what would you say? He said, well, that's kind of unusual. I don't know that I want to be a part of what it is they're doing. But by golly, there's a big sale on shoes and I'm going after them. You see that? We give ourselves to these things, ideas, philosophies, occupations, other things, without actually bowing down before them and worshiping them, But we would never actually bow down and worship those things. Yet what Paul is saying is that to participate in in a meal, to participate in a meal that has been sacrificed to an idol, is to bow down and worship that thing, even though you may not actually do it. Why? Because others have designated that purpose for it. So it doesn't mean that you can't go to the store and shop. You just need to know you're going in there because you need things. You're not going to the golf course because it's the most important thing in all the world because you enjoy playing golf every now and then. We have to apply this into the areas of life so that we're not giving to those things a greater allegiance or loyalty to that thing than to God. 
So Paul says, flee from idolatry because it is inconsistent with our union with Christ. We are not to associate with anything that would be considered idolatrous. Now the second reason that Paul gives is where he makes it even more obvious and more clear. Letter B, it is demonic. He says in verses 19 and 20, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers and demons. So in addition to being inconsistent with our identity, idolatry is... Demonic. Now, as Paul affirmed in chapter 8, the thing sacrificed, the meat, it has no power. Eating it is not going to make you sick. It's not going to make you well. Neither is the idol to which it is sacrificed anything because they're not real. Those things are nothing in themselves, but the idols represent that which is demonic And that's what Paul is concerned about. Now, before you say, no, wait a minute, you're jumping the gun here. You're going way off the rails. Just hold tight. Listen to the logic that Paul has here. Paul says that demons are the spiritual force behind all idolatry. So even though the idol itself is not real, and it is not a little g-god... There is a demonic force behind that idol. Those who sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to a demon that they don't necessarily recognize or even call by name. There is never a God behind an idol, but there is always a spiritual force. And that force is always evil. That force is always demonic. When Paul said in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The spiritual forces, the darkness in this world. That's what he's talking about. These these demonic spiritual realities that exist all around us and that can be made manifest through idol worship. Even though the idol is nothing, this is nothing, but there can be a demonic source behind that that is the true source of what it is an individual is worshiping or making a sacrifice to. So many cultic and pagan religious religions, excuse me, many cultic and pagan religious claims are faked and exaggerated, but some are actually true. So, for an example, much that happens under the name of astrology is simple exploitation of the gullible. You've heard those people, right? Oh, you're a Pisces. Well, we can never be together because we're different. Yeah, yeah, crazy out of that. But then people read the horoscope, and there's some general diagnosis or some general prediction of what's going to happen, and you plug something into that, and you go, oh, see, it's real. Astrology is real. Well, there can be some predictions that come true through the work of demonic forces. Demons are not unlimited in power, but they have power to perform enough wonders and to make enough predictions come true to keep superstitious worshipers deceived and loyal. Now, what's very clear here is is this. Demons are not omnipotent like God is. They're not omnipresent like God is. 
They do possess great power, and they manifest themselves in ways that we may or may not be aware of. So Paul would make an allusion to this in 2 Thessalonians verses 2, 9 through 11. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, and this is an allusion to the Antichrist, which some think is a literal physical being, although it can also be a generality for all things that are evil and wicked. So with all power and signs and false wonders. So the one coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. So not getting into this passage and trying to flesh it out in great detail, there is a power that exists within the demonic world. That demonic power can be made manifest through idol worship, and we may or may not be aware of idol worship. And I have heard some stories um, that make me believe that that's absolutely true. In fact, when my son Travis was in India just over a year ago, in the village that he uh, ministered to, there was a girl who showed every New Testament example of being demon-possessed. Throwing her body on the ground, eyes rolling back of the head, uncontrolled convulsions, speaking things that no one could understand. And it had been that way for years. The power, the influence of demons. This is what Jesus talked about in His ministry. This is what Jesus overcame in His ministry. It didn't end with His ministry. There still is a demonic force that is very real and very active. And when we give ourselves to idols, we are opening up ourselves to that demonic power. So to participate in the temple meals of Corinth was to participate with the demonic forces that are associated with idolatry. And to this, Paul says, run. Do not fellowship with demonic things. Paul gives the most emphatic language of his instruction here, of this instruction here, verse 21, where he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So to knowingly and intentionally eat food that has been sacrificed to idols is to have fellowship with demonic forces and Christians just cannot do this. Laura told me a story that they traveled abroad and they came across, they'd gone on a sightseeing tour through one of these temples and they were given, I think it was a pack of crackers with a wrapper and the wrapper said this was sacrificed to some god and she said, ooh, I'm not going to eat that. Exactly right. You do not want to associate with anything that has been sacrificed to an idol. Not because the, the thing itself is real or because the idol is real, but because there is a demonic force behind that false god that vies for loyalty and attention. So even though there's no power in the thing sacrificed and no reality and the one that it is sacrificed to, the demonic force behind the idol worship is absolutely and completely off limits to the Christian and a Christian cannot participate in those things. Those that participate in such meals have fallen into the same error as the Israelites who practiced pagan idolatry when they fashioned the golden calf with the shadow of the crossing of the Red Sea behind them. It didn't take them very long. And although they said this is the God who had delivered us from Egypt, that isn't God. 
and it became a demonic force to them. It is also quite possible that those who embrace idol worship and want to add Christianity to the fold are not true believers and their allegiance is divided. If you've ever shared with somebody who comes from a pluralistic religious culture and you share with them about the one and only God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who came, they say, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, I'll worship Jesus, and they'll just add Him to their mantle of idols. We just add one more. What's the harm in that? So it's possible that Paul is making an allusion that a Christian cannot do this because it is an associate, with the, an associate with demonic forces. It's also possible that Paul is saying this because to do so would indicate a false profession of faith in the Lord. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. I'm sorry, I didn't put this up there for you. Um, I'm out of sorts here, I'm sorry. Um, I did this after I created this, I'm sorry. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So the the choice was worshiping God and worshiping money, but the principle is clear. We can only have one God that's going to rule and dominate our life. So, this is what Paul is saying. It is inconsistent. It is demonic. And the last one, letter C, it is offensive. This is the final piece of explanation that Paul gives for this, and it's framed in a rhetorical question, and it has the assumed answer of no. Verse 22, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? So the obvious answer to that question is no, we do not want to provoke the Lord to jealousy, and no, we are not stronger than He. But the implication is clear. If they are to continue in communing with demonic forces through participation in the idol celebration on the temple meals that they are risking a provocation of the Lord's jealousy in their life. Now when we hear the word jealous, it means something very different to us. For us, it talks about a human emotion, a human emotion that is insecure, it is sometimes followed up with anger, It desires adoration from others, but that's not what God's jealousy is at all. So to provoke the Lord to jealousy is a reminder of the Song of Moses that was recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is a recounting of Israel's disobedient unfaithfulness to God through the sacrifice to demons. And it says here in Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not gods, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. The result of the worship provoked the Lord's jealousy. And he says in Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So the jealousy of God is not an emotional reaction to somebody not doing something they should or somebody doing something that they shouldn't. The jealousy of God is His holy commitment to His honor, His glory, and His love that manifests itself in the salvation of His people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to Him. So God is not going to allow His people 
to give their love and allegiance to anyone or anything else. And when we do, we risk provoking his jealousy. So the second rhetorical question that is asked here is a ridiculous question, and that is a a comparison of our strength to the Lord's. Are we strong enough to avoid or to evade God's discipline for idolatry? Not a chance. Sometimes Christians have a hard time discerning between the pruning of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord. Well, the closer we're walking with God, the more clear we will be about this being this being a pruning of our life so we can bear more fruit for Him, or this being discipline in our life because of decisions we're making. So are we willing to share our highest devotion with someone or something other than the God that we have identified with and have been joined to through the cross of Christ. If we do, will we be surprised when the Lord disciplines us? Whenever we experience the discipline of the Lord, we must ask ourselves very quickly, Lord, what have I done? Not why are you doing this, but what have I done? Give to me clarity so that I know the sin that I need to repent from. That's what we need to ask ourselves. You know, this life that you and I live as Christians, commemorated through communion, is to be lived for Him, for His plans, His purposes, His glory, not our own. And it isn't very difficult to get mixed up and how effectively we are doing that. So we'll stand together and let's sing this song as a point of commitment.